มาหาเกียวเจ๊ไทยดับลำปีเมกาฮันเซนว่าตอนนี้ผู้ที่ได้รับการยอมรับจากพรรคพลังงานเป็นผู้ที่มีอำนาจมากที่สุดในประเทศ
firstly through his involvement in the original regime installed by the Vietnamese in 1979, and latterly by ending the subsequent civil war through his win-win policy. In doing so, Hun Sen also established the parameters under which the Khmer Rouge Tribunal would eventually be established, specifically that it would only try the top leaders of the genocide and leave everyone else untouched. This bought Hun Sen loyalty from both victims and perpetrators of the genocide, who were keen to see the back of the violence of the past. But in addition, by taking this approach, he also constrained the scope of the early memorialization and reconciliation activities conducted in Cambodia, because they focused only on a legalistic and top-down approach. This meant that questions, important questions of responsibility, autonomy and guilt at the community and lower levels were left untouched for years after the regime fell. Many victims were forced to live side by side and in some cases under the political authority of their former Khmer Rouge perpetrators and without any recourse to justice, facilitated truth-telling or any real efforts towards reconciliation. How do Cambodians remember this tumultuous time of rebuilding and the narratives that aim to justify and make sense of it? And how is this history presented and told to people today? And what impact does that have on contemporary Cambodian society? To begin to answer these questions, I spoke with Proc Vanni, a specialist in reconciliation and peace building, and also a former politician for the opposition Human Rights Defence League party. I began by asking her what she thought about this question of control and how culpable the top leaders can be held to be for the regime as a whole. Like a pulpit, he mentioned that he do not know the situation like this. He declared in the court, yeah? He declared he do not, he do not make the act like this. But who are make act like this? It sounds like the top do not know. And but the baton is made uh, serious and serious than, than the top. And Do you believe that? Do you believe that the top didn't know what was going on at the bottom? Um, it's difficult to believe. For, for me, it's difficult to believe. Mm. He know that the problem, but how to solve the problem, he, are difficult. he is difficult a bit because around him, who are they? We see that, oh, that serious problem come from the top. Like currently. Why? Because everything from top, the top, say, mention like this, like that. And the bottom, ah, oh, the top say one, but the bottom sometimes say two as well. Yeah. It still happened like this. You mentioned that um, Lomnil was very um, reliant on the US mm. and likewise Khmer Rouge were reliant on China. Mm. Um, but some people say that uh, the current government today is very reliant on China as well in a different way. Um, mm. Lots of loans, lots of development, mm. much more tourists for gambling. Mm. Um, do you, what's your view on that? Hmm. It's <laughs> we are in the we are now as observer too. We know that we like to China, but we observe as well from Vietnam. 
There are many Vietnamese come to Cambodia, Vietnamese, Saudi Arabia, Vietnamese want to occupy this place, that place as well. And how about the top leader thing? Vietnam said that we have Cambodia, but nobody has the other without benefit. Just wanted to cut in really quickly here because this is an interesting comment to say that nobody helps the other without benefit. In this context, she's implying that Vietnam wasn't wholly altruistic in deposing the Pol Pot regime and that they too benefited from taking over Cambodia. Now, this is a highly contestable claim. It also subtly references that longer-term narrative I mentioned earlier, that Vietnam is annexationist and is always looking for a way to absorb Cambodian territory. Proc's casual mentioning of Vietnamese soldiers on the streets of Cambodia is, again, sort of further implying this view of history. For China as well, because we heard the story with the other country, that country, I do not remember that country, borrowed the money from China and then later on China want to cut uh, the port, the boat port. Yeah, Sri Lanka. Yeah, Sri Lanka, I think. Sri Lanka. How about Cambodia? Now he occupied for Kampong uh, Sao. Do you think these, um, these issues are creating tension in Cambodia? I think so. How so? Uh, the problem of gunster, the problem of, uh, uh, how to say, evacuate, or it seems like. People being pushed out? Uh, yeah, push people out and they stay. Hmm. Obviously, the memory of the Khmer Rouge period is very, very strong in Cambodia, and lots of people still hold a lot of uh, emotions and memories and difficulties from that time. Yeah. Do you think that is used in politics in any way? For the old generation, only, oh, afraid, oh, worried. But like my niece, like my uh, nephew, when I talk the situation of the purple, they feel that it's difficult to believe. <laughs> you are difficult to believe, but it's real. What I mentioned to you is something real. They feel if so serious like this, why are you still alive? <laughs> Some new generation, they are still hesitant to believe that that situation is so serious, like we inform them. Do you think that um, if young people don't believe or they don't understand the past very well, um, do you think that that is dangerous for peace? Do you think there are that could be problematic? We worry. Mm. It seems like I, I, I always talk about we, it seems like my generation don't want to see them to fall down the same like us. Because of the same, because we do, we think that the conflict is cannot like this, yeah? But it's true. When the government says, so in the election, for example, when the government says, we saved you from the Khmer Rouge, yeah. 
Is that a powerful message for people? Powerful. Powerful. Because they order from the top-down approach to the bottom, and the bottom need to follow the, the top. Only the government that can protect you, only this group that better than the other. And look at the real situation and look, look at the progress of the country. If you look at the progress of the country, what else that you want to see? You see, they think that is it good enough? That from them that you have a right sphere, from them that you can grow up like this, you have a house, you have a children to go to work with the good salaries and salaries. Do you agree with that? Mm, no. So ladies, that I joined the politics. That was Proc Veni, formerly of the Human Rights Defence League party, followed by the sounds of celebrations on the Mekong during Bon Om Tuk, the annual water festival in Phnom Penh. What I find particularly fascinating about that interview is Proc Veni's comments at the end, where she says that the memory of the Khmer Rouge provides a powerful legitimisation narrative for the current government where they can say they saved the country from ruin and chaos and instead provided schools, jobs and roads. It's a legitimisation narrative that gets repeated over and over again, including by the government itself. And along with the suppression of the opposition parties and the restriction of freedom of speech, this narrative delivered the Cambodian People's Party a landslide victory in the widely derided 2018 election. So this is a really hot topic even today. I wanted to explore the relationship between the way that the past was presented and the impact that that has had on shaping political power in Cambodia a bit more. So I spoke to Che Visop, director of the infamous Genocide Museum in Phnom Penh. The museum is probably one of the country's most famous tourist attractions after the Angkor Wat temples and was converted from a torture prison to the country's main site of memorialization by the Vietnamese shortly after the overthrow of the Khmer Rouge, which I already mentioned earlier. I started by asking him how he would respond to the claims that the museum was established as a way of justifying and legitimizing the Vietnamese invasion. And what evidence does the site include about the crimes that were committed there? Uh, in the political context, they said, okay, this prison is just, um, you know, set up by uh, the Vietnamese troops, you know, when they liberate the country. And then this is not true, you know. And then that's why I love this place. I love in in sense of giving the the truth, you know. It, it doesn't love a killing system, but I love in telling the truth. Because when somebody uh, said that this is this is just you know the uh, structure um, erected by um, the the other nation, and then I think this is this is completely crazy and and, and not true at all. Because recently we find out the graffiti. You know, uh, the left by the victims and the security got themselves uh, inside of a, a, a room or a building. So, you cannot do that. You know, this is only the actual context that makes this happen. 
No one can spend time to do that, to, to make it fake. You see, if it is uh, created or setting up by the, the other uh, country, why we just uh, realize about this context, you know? So I think this is really important, you know? I can just can tell you we can find the names of the victim. We can find uh, mostly with the um, the number of days that he or she was detained. You know, sometimes they 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 still address about their um, their loyalty to the revolution. I mean, to the communist party. You know, even he or she was detained there, but the same thing. He or she had never and ever. Um, betray the revolution. You know, it, it's something like that. And sometimes they tell where they are coming from. You know, the region that came from. And most cases, we we see. Oh, okay, only one case that we can see one uh, victim. That, that this is only one case and very ex- exceptional case that they can stand and write and very long as a biography. But unfortunately, we cannot take the photograph because it. You know, because they use. The material that they use, finger, uh, the nail, you know, from the fingernail, they just use this to to carve or to write, you know, on the wall, and then um, some you can see uh, in pencil, but not very common. But this is might be uh, the security guard themselves turned to be, you know, a prisoner. We don't know exactly because they have these kinds of material, they can write on the wall. You know? And then um, um, sometimes they, they can use uh, very sharp uh, uh, material because we can see on the floor, you know, on this towel, and then they can see clearly that they, they try to make a graffiti on the floor, telling the name and then uh, you know uh, the number of uh, day that uh, day that he or she were um, was detained. So. Um, um, at the moment, uh, we we just on the first finish the first stage of collecting and analyzing a little bit. And my my original idea, you know, I just want to to find out a name of uh, any victims in the room, and then I can use the name to check with the biography, cross check with the confession or biography. I just want to to tell the story of he or she to the visitor, you know. But it's very difficult for me because mostly they write only a given name, and then it's hard. For example, yeah, like your context, you know, uh, David, and then what kinds of David? You know, more David. We don't know which David. For example, one case that I I I, I explore, one name. We can find in our context about 15 different names. But we don't know who is who. It's very difficult for us, you know. So this is what we can uh, find into at the moment uh, regarding to this uh, graffiti and the method that we are doing. So. Um, why is it important for to, to tell people about this past? Because uh, for Cambodian and also the world, but um, for me, I, I think it, it, it's very important for young Cambodian people because when they learned about the history um, through, through the text itself, it's hard for them to believe, you know. It can be said, okay, so, um, maybe the writers um, 
the lightest region or heaviest region, and then they try to interpret um, the, through their own intention or something like that. But I think um, they, 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 this is the best uh, for them to do the comparison, you know, among um, um, the the knowledge that they absorb through the text uh, at school, and then when they come here as a part of their project, and then they can, can make a comparison whether this is true or not. You know, so I, I think for me this is important for them to learn about um, um, this structure, and and then another one is important when they know about the tragedy that happening through this site, and then they won't forget it, and they will learn from from this past experience, and they try to find ways, you know, to avoid that this this kinds of um, uh, a tragedy would be happen again in the future. That's why when we are moving ahead, we need to take eye on these kinds of um, um, you know uh, 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 tragedy. You know, try to avoid it. So this is what I I, I really want them uh, to to understand about the importance of of, of, of this uh, of this site. Is there a lot of skepticism about the past? Is there a lot of people who don't believe that it's uh, really told the right way? Or? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, you know, because uh, some young Cambodian student who, as you know, 65% of, of, of the young Cambodian uh, uh, was born after the Khmer Rouge. And this is a very high, you know, number um, in our history. And that's why um, they really don't believe in that. You know, sometimes uh, when they ask them, they uh, seem to be reluctant. When we are talking, okay, during Khmer Rouge times, uh, people don't have enough food, and then they said, "What? Don't have enough food?" Or we we say that, okay, when we don't have any food, and then uh, when uh, we worked very hard at the rice field, and then we just try to, um, you know, to eat um, crab, um, fresh crab or fish or something like that, and they they don't believe. Uh, this kind of difficulty, and then sometimes they said, "Okay, when if the Khmer Rouge found out that um, uh, he or she, um, you know, uh, um, uh, eat um, those stuff without uh, telling them or without getting the permission, they would be uh, tortured or you know, or killed." They don't believe in this, uh, you know, son. When the museum was established, mm -hmm. um, some people felt that the museum was kind of fabricated by the Vietnamese mm -hmm. and that obviously that's been shown to be false because of mm -hmm. graffiti but also mm -hmm. the records mm -hmm. and um, eyewitness sure. testimony and you know we have two survivors yeah, outside for sure, for sure. Um, today but um, a lot of people at the time said that uh, that setting up the museum was used to justify the occupation by the Vietnamese and that it was used to kind of um, validate their invasion do you, what's your view on that? For me, I uh, I don't again. I just want to clarify: this is not invasion, but this is um, I, I think from outside eyes they can say the invasion in their own um, uh, judgment. But for us, this is a kind of the liberation. You know, if he or she were in that situation, both my mom and the other relative who were during that time, we don't care who they are because what we need help. And that's why I prefer to, to you know, uh, to argue this is not invasion, this is the liberation, you know, uh, that Cambodian who are fleeing to the Vietnam 
and join hands with um, the Vietnamese troops in order to liberate the country. And then, frankly speaking, um, uh, 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 when we are setting up this, absolutely, it's just used for the content of the uh, of the you know uh, the, the the government you know want to prove. I, I I just don't want to talk much, but at least at that time. Uh, maybe it's not straightforward to what you want, but I just want to tell when we're setting up this benefits it go to Cambodian people first beside to involve with the political perspective of someone I don't care you know but why I say it's, it benefits to Cambodian people because this is the first place that they come to search for their family this is very important for us you know, if we don't have this place, it means that we lost our hope. Both myself, you know, I lost my father. And then I still, I don't know where was he. And was he alive or migrated to the other country? And then um, I just still, I just still have a hope. Um, when I was young, that one day uh, I can find my father, you know, but I never. I never discover about it because I always live with that uh, um, um, that kinds of uh, expectation, you know. But for those who can travel to check, you know, to have a cross check with the name that we have through the confession, with the photo that we establish, and then we feel relaxed. Okay, the relative completely lost, and then. We can take that opportunity in order to focus on the current, you know, uh, work or uh, career that we are working. We don't care much about the loss anymore because we we know exactly that he or she lost the other day. But as my my contact, you know, I live with these kinds of hope until I go to high school level, you know. So it live with me like in in that way, and then this is good place for them to come and search for their family. And the most important, after we collect all the confession, and then we just publish the first um, uh, execution list or the prisoner list, and then we just disseminate to the provinces. As a result, many of the family in the province level, they, 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 they look through the, uh, the list and then they, they find out their family, you know, okay, they lost this already. So I think this is a part of the reconciliation. You know, the first stage after the Khmer Rouge that people, Cambodian people can get for a part of the re reconciliation to make them feel relaxed, you know. Uh, don't put more expectation, put more money, finance, you know, to search for their family. So, but I just want to, to, to answer only in that level, but for another political level, I really don't want to, to highlight about that. Mm. The main purpose at the time, besides the political, for sure, for Cambodian people, to understand, in order to uh, put the burden for the Khmer Rouge who killed millions of Cambodian people. This is, you cannot, uh, we cannot say uh, no for this kinds of purpose of setting up the museum at that time mainly for Cambodian people, besides a kind of propaganda, you know, to get support from outside, but for local, you know, to 
keep the strong evidence to condemn the uh, the Khmer Rouge about uh, the tragedy happening in Cambodia. Uh, I'm just most interested in this this scepticism that you've mentioned a couple of times from younger generations because mm. I know that you know in the election last year, for example. Mm -hmm. um, this, and I think the same was for the election before in 2013. Uh, the CPP is very keen to say, you know, we say, like you said, refer to the bad times. Mm -hmm. So say, you know, it's no longer like that anymore. We saved you from the Khmer Rouge. And so if there's a lot of skepticism yeah. around that, <laughs> then I wonder how impactful that narrative is and how, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How, how resonant it is for people. But those who came through the Khmer Rouge, they, they understand well about the difficulty of this. And then they still support the government. You know, because they don't want to, to have these kinds of regime back again. No matter what who they are, include opposition party themselves. They really don't want to see the society back to the bad period like Khmer Rouge. But for the younger generation, they're going to put a question. Is it true? Is it true? So who they are going to engage first? They're going to talk to their relative or the people who came through the Khmer Rouge, their parents, right? So I, I think this is a very powerful message of the government that they want to remind the young Cambodian people. When I was young, frankly speaking, I really biased to the opposition party. Even after the, I finished the university, I just believe in that way too. I think my society need change. Need change from one leader to another leader. But I did not think about the impact. Is it good? Because from my concept, I think, okay, if I don't like A, and then I hope that B gonna be there, and then everything gonna be fine. <laughs> it's like black and white. But I changed this completely when I, I get older, and then I, I can, think deeply is about the impact, about blah, 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 and then I think, okay, no, it's not true at all. We need to support together, to sit down together, to have a common dialogue. Cannot say only A that can do this, only B that cannot do this, but what, from, from my, my, my opinion at the moment, both, we can work together for our community, for our society, you know, in order to develop our country oil is going to be back to the Khmer Rouge region. Even myself, I still remind myself back to the Khmer Rouge region too. So I think for me, I, I, this is from my understanding, you know, based on my own experience and, and both what I can see at the moment in, in Cambodian society. That was Che Vassot, director of the Toolslang Genocide Museum, followed by the sound of Cham schoolgirls singing in Kampot province. It was a really interesting conversation with Che Vassot, and a powerful example of how sites of memorialization can lead to real-world impact. In addition, Che's comments at the end 
about the importance of stability and security, they almost exactly mirror the legitimization narrative that the government justifies itself through. In many ways, that is no surprise, given that Che is a public servant and so is effectively directly employed by the Cambodian state. He's not going to bite the hand that feeds. But it also provides a powerful example of how successful the ruling Cambodian People's Party has been at equating themselves with prosperity and stability, in contrast to the chaos and destruction of the past. And that, crucially, this will only be maintained through their continued grip on power. This argument is deeply entrenched in modern political Cambodian culture, and it demonstrates just how central the command of historical narratives is for the ability of the CPP to continue to wield their power. There is also an element of validity to this argument around a return to violence and civil war, particularly given Hun Sen's strong control of the military and his heavily armed, personally loyal private guard units. Here we can see that there is a relationship between the legitimization narrative of the past saying that the CPP saved Cambodia from the violence of the Khmer Rouge, whilst on the other hand also a valid and legitimate threat to return to violence and having the means to be able to do so. That's a powerful combination. As well as the Tool Sleng Genocide Museum, I was keen to speak to the other main centre for memorialization, the Documentation Centre of Cambodia. In addition to housing the country's most extensive archive of Khmer Rouge records, the centre runs outreach programmes throughout the country, including a small learning centre called An Long Veng Peace Centre, based in the far north of the country, just next to the border with Thailand, in an area that was one of the last strongholds of the Khmer Rouge. Recent research has suggested that around 75% of the residents of An Long Veng are former Khmer Rouge soldiers and cadre, and latent support for the regime runs deep there, even to this day. I spoke to Kiang Lai, director of the Anlong Veng Peace Centre, and started by asking him about the centre's activities, and what the importance of Anlong Veng is as a place of memory and history, both for itself and for the country as a whole. Because only after the reintegration of Anlong Veng in 1998, that from that point that Cambodia enjoyed full peace. So that's why we use An Long Wei as a reflection point of the entire genocide in Cambodia. Because approximately 80% of the former Khmer Rouge members are living there. So we, we use the historical site and the people living there as a living memory that we can reflect how ideologies, mentalities, and the ways of life of the people in Anlong Veng at that time caused the genocide. Is it difficult to get former Khmer Rouge people to talk about their experience, or was it difficult to begin with? In the past, we acknowledge that uh, there are some difficulty because some people do not are not willing to reveal everything because of the ongoing tribunal. But at some point, they still uh, talk something uh, like general thing about the Khmer Rouge history. For example, they talk about starvation, disease, about hardworking, something like that, overwork. But rather than uh, focus much on the uh, 
feeling or any, uh, any specific person who used to commit this or that crimes. So it's like a surface, mm. like something on the surface. What about the former Khmer Rouge themselves? Do you, in your experience, um, do you think there is still support for what the Khmer Rouge was trying to achieve from some of those ex-soldiers? Anlong Wang itself, like the people there, still believe in the leadership and the governing of the Khmer Rouge leader, especially the Mok. Just wanted to jump in here to explain something quickly. Under the Khmer Rouge, Cambodia was divided up into separate semi-autonomous administrative zones. Tar Mok was the leader of the southwest zone, which was the region that was most loyal to, Phnom, to Pol Pot. It was also known as the most brutal, with far higher rates of overwork and execution than in other areas of the country, for the most part. For these reasons, Tar Mok was infamously nicknamed the Butcher, and yet here, King is saying that the residents of Anlong Veng still support Tarmok and view his legacy in a very different way to that of historians and indeed most of the rest of the country. You know, uh, Tarmok built a lot of things from lake to hospital and school that you can do visit. So uh, people in Anlong Veng remember him as saying it's a gift of the Mok that we can. Uh, use the water. People say, compare it to diamond. The water, it's about life. And the mobile hospital for people, school for people, and also build house for people, bridge. So people remember him as a good guy. And uh, they do not uh, you know, they, they, they do not critically ask or wonder about what the Mok has done uh, during the Khmer Rouge regime. What difference do you think it's made to Cambodia um, with the invention or, or since the foundation of DC CAM and Long Beng Peace Centre? What, what difference has it made to Cambodia to have these memorialization institutions? In the past, only a few sentences of the history were incorporated into the curriculum. But now people talk about it, uh, debate about it, and uh, like people feel that history is quite important because it's more like it makes them feel confident in making any decision in the current situation. Uh, without the content of history, sometimes it's really hard to understand or people will not know themselves. So now they, they move beyond the content of history, but it's more about uh, go deeper into part of the history. For example, if they debate about the 7th January 1929, yeah, especially that one. It was quite sensitive. What do you mean the debate about it? Whether it was um, liberation or conquest? Yes, yes, yes. People say it's a liberation. And for me, I wrote a book about this as well as part of my dissertation. I, I feel that people keep asking this. And I feel that it's two sides are right in their own way. Like liberation in terms of without a Vietnamese present or military attacks to topple the Khmer Rouge. Who? So who? Laos? Thai? 
US, UN, or who? Which country? If the invasion at some point is correct as well, because the Vietnamese did not uh, get approval from the U United Nations Security Council to launch a military attack into a sovereign state. state. So it's about memorialization, and people interpret and translate the history in different way. Uh, but we don't care how much uh, the knowledge they have, like they can know little or know much, but at least people begin to talk and take the ownership of their own history, rather than uh, uh, believe in uh, a few scholar scholarly book by Ben Cannon or the V. Chandler. <laughs> yeah, we mentioned briefly, we spoke briefly about um, different debates that are still going on. Do you think there are any narratives about the Khmer Rouge past are used for the benefit of certain groups or certain organizations in the present? I would say I would not have a clear-cut answer to this, but the narrative that, that they made is more about to uh, support their own group. For example, the narrative from, from the former Khmeris member, they may portray them as a nationalist to protect the country. The narrative from the others, maybe it's about liberating people from the killing, from the genocide. We tend to believe in what they are saying from the victim side. So the narrative is, uh, is quite complicated at some point. But uh, when people talk, so we can put it into, we put it together and we can explain a bigger picture. Yeah, one, one narrative that I've seen being used, um, for example, in last year's election, is around the Cambodian People's Party, who always, uh, in this election and in 2013, they say, you know, we saved you from the Khmer Rouge, we don't want to go back to that period of violence, um, so you should vote for us. Um, do you see this? Do uh, do you agree with that? Do you see that they um, use that narrative, and do you think it's a, a convincing narrative for people, for CPP voters and people in the country? It's uh, it's the art of the politician who who say something like uh, to get a vote from the people, but in reality is that uh, we work together to prevent genocide from happening again in our country. As I told you, it's a way that the politician, politician try to portray or to show something that is quite serious and then people have to make their own decision, uh, individually or collectively. It's the decision. That was Dr. Kieng Lai of the Anlong Veng Peace Centre, followed by the sounds of some off-road motorbikes in Takiao province. I felt that Kieng's comments, whilst somewhat guarded, ring true. That while politicians will always spin the narrative to suit their interests, it's up to people to determine whether or not they buy into those narratives. 
problem with this, of course, is that in Cambodia there is very little free press or freedom of speech to discuss and debate alternative views, and no real alternative avenues to challenge the power of the ruling party. In absence of any alternative or any contestation of those narratives, narratives around the legitimacy of the existing rule become powerful, pervading and unchallenged, ultimately helping to secure and maintain existing power structures. It seems likely to me that this is one of the key reasons why Cambodia's current regime restricts freedom of speech so tightly. As an outsider, it's very easy, and I think valid, to criticise Cambodia for its lack of adherence to multi-party democracy, something that we take for granted in the West. Certainly the public space for political contestation is restricted in the country, but there's something else going on here as well that both Kieng Lai and Che Vasot both refer to, something a bit more subtle and nuanced. Both men are arguing that the government and opposition parties must work together, urging them to practice more pluralism in politics in order to uphold the memory of the past and to guard against its repetition. And in their own way, both DC Cam and the Tool Slang Genocide Museum play a role in doing just that, as semi-autonomous yet semi-public institutions. It's not multi-party representative democracy, but it is a small step to bring greater coherence, unity and collaboration to civil society and to nurture more pluralistic governance, even if it is limited only to the arena of genocide prevention. Perhaps this could be the first site of fledgling collaboration that could grow into something more pluralistic in the future. As with so much in Cambodia, that will depend on Hun Sen's approach over the coming years, though with political power increasingly concentrated in his hands, the chances currently seem slim. My time in Cambodia was nearly at an end, and having lived for nearly two years just down the road from the Tool Slang Genocide Museum, it felt like the last interview needed to be with Chum Mei. Out of roughly 20,000 prisoners who passed through its gates, Chum Mei was one of only seven survivors of the notorious Tool Slang prison. Now, late into his 80s, Chum Mei sits within the prison grounds every single day, selling his book and talking with tourists about his experiences as a prisoner. I wanted to know why he chose to dedicate almost half of his life to memorialising his experience in the past, rather than trying to move on from it. I couldn't understand why he didn't avoid the site at which he was imprisoned and tortured, so I needed to talk to him about why. So yeah. when, when did you first come back to Tool Slang, and did you choose to go, or were you asked to go? I first came to Tool Slang in 1979, it was after the Khmer Rouge. And I came here because uh, I want uh, uh, an American uh, journalist uh, based in Singapore, want to meet me. He actually at the time he worked at uh, uh, telecommunication mm. and since uh, the journalist uh, wanted to meet me, so mm. I came to meet him at Tulsleng. Mm. Terrible things happened inside Tulsleng, including to you. Mm. Yeah. How did it feel going back to Tulsleng um, after the regime had finished? I felt very painful. Yeah. 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 Yeah
most likely atmospheric yeah. painful yeah. because there were yeah. three million of people yeah. were killed at the time, including yeah. my four kids yeah. and my wife. Yeah. Yeah. I cried. Yeah. Yeah. It was, let's say, it was too difficult. Anyway, yeah. I have to go there in order to expose the information yeah. to the world. Yeah. I was so uh, sad because uh, when the let's say uh, when the guests came, came inside, they went to see the room that I was uh, present. And when we went outside, they they went they went to me and they cried and I also cried a little. Is it difficult having to relive these experiences every day? Because for me, I would have thought I would want to leave the prison and never come back. <laughs> but you come back every day. So, um, yeah, I want to know how that feels and why um, he does it, I suppose. Yeah. I don't want the killing to happen again, mm. no matter in, in, the, in Cambodia or in around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, once, whenever there is killing, and fighting, uh, it killed both good and bad people. Mm. Uh, of course, I, I am sad whenever they, they ask me questions concerning the killing and about what happened during the Khmer Rouge. But it, it is my responsibility to, to tell them about what happened. And of course, I am 88 years old now. I, sh- I, should, I should have been home, but why I have to come to Tuslang for selling the books? When the prison was first opened under the Vietnamese, um, some people said that it was propaganda. How would you respond to that? It's true, it's true. True. In what way? Normally, if my house is fire, uh, it's possible that it spread to other houses. Mm. So if the neighbor yeah. uh, do not have me, yeah. it's possible that their house will be burned too. Yeah, I understand. Do you know how many uh, Vietnamese yeah. work here yeah. during the Khmer Rouge? Yeah, yeah. 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 I guess um, my only last question is, uh, what do you think the future holds for Tool Slang and for yourself? For the future, Tool Slang is not only for the knowledge of Cambodia, but the world. And do you think uh, you'll ever stop going to Tuslin? It's impossible for me not to come here unless I die. Because I want to spread the news uh, not to let uh, or to educate young generation or next generation not to repeat uh, the same acts as Khmer Rouge does. Mm. So it's like a compulsion. 
That was Chum Mei, survivor of the tools-slaying torture prison, followed by the sounds of street sellers in Phnom Penh. I found it a real challenge to interview Chum Mei. How do you get under the skin of an experience that is so quintessentially horrifying and at the same time so personal? I'd struggled to do so effectively and it was difficult to break down these barriers. During our conversation, Chum Mei repeated several phases over and again, and I couldn't help but feel like he was telling me what he thought I wanted to hear. And yet, while that was my experience, that, in a way, was also quite telling. Chum Mei had told his story so many times to so many people that it had almost become rote, and getting underneath it to solicit a candid and unrehearsed answer was difficult. His practice of coming to the prison every day and memorialising his experience had come to define him, to consume him almost. Where I'd previously not understood how Chum Mei could bring himself to return to his place of torture and imprisonment, I now felt the opposite, that it was the main thing giving him purpose in his life, and that it was all he felt he could do. In a way, that's an interesting allegory for the Cambodian experience, that although time has moved on, the country is unable to let go, but in some ways it is unable to stop going back, to keep telling its story, to keep reminding others of what happened here, lest we forget. My time in Cambodia had drawn to a close. It's a beautiful, conflicted and absorbing country, one that viscerally demonstrates the importance of history in shaping and defining our present. On leaving, I felt a great sense of tension between generations in the country. On the one hand, survivors of the regime want their traumatic experiences to be remembered and memorialised so as not to be repeated, and for that trauma to be explored and embraced so as to build reconciliation and closure. And on the other hand, you have younger generations who are trying to forge a new path, a new identity that is not predicated on victimhood or mass violence, but is instead outward-looking, optimistic and contemporary, a nation that's engaged with and a part of the modern world, and which can go beyond year zero. In some ways, it's this tension and the dynamic between these two truths that make Cambodia such a beguiling, fascinating and exciting place to be. And in the wake of so many debilitating and brutal conflicts around the world, perhaps we can learn a lot from Cambodia about the processes by which people and societies move on from mass conflict and how that process can be encouraged, stalled or curtailed by powerful vested interests and the governance of post-conflict societies. Thank you.
That's all we've got time for, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this third episode on memory and memorialization. All that's left for me to say is Orgunjaran, Somnanglaor, Nunglia Howie. And thanks for listening to Beyond Year Zero. Ah!